This is a special episode of the Hackeye Magazine Audio Edition. Our expert panelists and hosts dig into deep sea mining, explaining exactly what it is, what's at stake, how imminent it is, and who holds the decision-making power to push it forward or rein it in. This conversation was recorded during the Hakai Magazine online event called Deep Sea Mining Demystified on December 9th, 2021. Uh, hello, everyone. I am Colin Schultz. Uh, I'll be the host of our webinar today. I am the news editor at Hackeye Magazine. Um, and so in some capacity or another, I've been writing and editing and working on stories about deep, the deep sea, deep sea hydrothermal vents, deep sea mining for about a decade um, before I started working at Hackeye where we cover it pretty regularly. I was writing about geophysics and earth sciences a lot related to the deep sea. So I'm the host for a discussion that we'll be having today about deep sea mining. Um, which is a sort of rapidly approaching, uh, tense, complex issue. It's an industry that's on the brink of going big, and it's in a long time. It's it's a big mess. It's complicated, and we have some very excellent guests uh, here today to help us understand it, uh, answer your questions about it, try to make sense of the things. I have a lot of questions of my own. Uh, but so I'm the news editor at Hackeye Magazine. And Hackeye Magazine is a magazine, it's a science, a popular science magazine based out of Victoria, British Columbia. It's a magazine, it's a science magazine that's focused on coastal science and society. So we uh, report on issues relevant to coastal people around the world. Um, as we go through the webinar, if you have any questions for the, we'll be uh, asking, so having a Q&A session at the end. Um, so if you have any questions, there's actually a Q&A tool located at the bottom of the Zoom screen. So you can put your questions in there and I'll get those. So before we kind of launch into the whole webinar itself, I want to set up a little bit what the goal and structure of the of this discussion will be, because it sort of is a discussion that will take place in two parts. Um, the goal of the uh, discussion is people have been paying attention to deep sea mining to various capacities. It's kind of burst forth this past summer as an issue that a lot of people are starting to pay a lot more attention to. And so the goal is um, to get everyone on the same page. Often you'll be reading stories about deep sea mining in the popular press. You'll read a story about Japan, or you'll read a story about the Middle Atlantic Bridge, or you'll read a story about Nuru, or you'll read a story about the Clarion Clipperton Zone. And you're like, this is deep sea mining. And the difficulty of this emerging industry is that while we call these all deep sea mining, they're not all the same thing. I, I will argue that there's functionally six different kinds of deep sea mining. And we're gonna get into all of that into some, some to more depth than others. So the basic structure of this is that we have our, our three experts here and they'll help us understand sort of the who, what, where, when, why, and how of deep sea mining. And later, as we get towards the end of the discussion, especially in the Q&A section, we'll get into some of the more complicated questions, you know, the shoulds and the coulds. Which, but first, we just want to make sure everyone is 
as you are in this discussion, as you're reading things, as you're seeing things on TV, you know that when someone says polymetallic nodules in, the, in international waters, that's a different thing than in a country's territorial waters or a, a hydrothermal vent. We call them all deep sea mining, but they're not the same. They have different issues, they have different problems, they have different opportunities, depending on sort of where you sit on the spectrum of seeing, seeing this thing. So we have wonderful guests here who could not be better situated to help us understand this. Um, we have John Jameson, who is a, a Canada Research Chair in Deep Sea Geology, and he's a professor at Memorial University of Newfoundland. He's going to help us understand, you know, the, the, the geological uh, aspects at play. He has some, ex uh, some involvement in the policy side. He knows more about terrestrial mining. So we're going to have him to lean on the, for those sorts of questions. We have uh, Verena Tunnicliffe, who is also a Canada Research Chair in Deep Ocean Research, and she's a marine biologist at the University of Victoria in British Columbia. She's going to help us understand all the biological dimensions of this issue, of which there are many. Uh, and our third guest is Klaas Willert. He is a uh, professor of law at Ghent University in Belgium, and he's an expert on the law of the sea. So a big part of this issue is policy, regulation, international diplomacy. So he's going to help walk us through some of those issues. So as I was saying before, um, if you have any questions, use the Q&A tool down at the bottom and we'll, we'll work our way towards those at the end. Um, so we're going to start off the, the, the way that I want to kind of help us get our heads around this complicated topic is to start at the very bottom and we're going to go up and out. So the, we're going to start with geology. That's the, what are these things? Why are we talking about this at all? And we're going to get into more and bigger uh, consequences and issues. So uh, our, the person who's going to help us go through the geological questions is John Jameson, who, among his various other accomplish, accomplishments, was about this close to being an astronaut. I don't know if you thought that was going to come up. <laughs> But uh, I just I thought that was cool. So I just wanted to, you know, but so at the, the, you know, I said at the very top that there's uh, six types of deep sea mining. There's three sort of main physical objects of interest when we're talking about deep sea mining. Um, there's hydrothermal vents, polymetallic nodules, and cobalt-rich crusts. And I'd like to kind of go through them one by one. So very briefly, if you know, if you were writing a textbook and you were writing the little, you know, the little sidebar uh, definition, what uh, what is a hydrothermal vent? What minerals are formed there, and how are they formed? Right, um, hydrothermal vents. Basically, they are hot water springs at the bottom of the ocean. And uh, so they, they occur where you have essentially volcanic activity at the bottom of the ocean, so mid-ocean ridges um, and uh, subduction zones, which are, are we find in the South Pacific around all the volcanic islands down there. And so magma heats up seawater that circulates through the crust. And um, when that water is hot, it reacts with the rock and it extracts minerals out of the rock, essentially, and uh, in particular metals. And uh, that fluid ultimately makes its way back up to the seafloor. 
And when that hot water that's full of dissolved metals mixes with cold seawater, it produces a hydrothermal vent on the seafloor. And that mixing causes all of those middle, uh, minerals and metals to suddenly precipitate. And so you, you form these chimneys or you can form mounds and they're called black smokers. And all that black smoke is essentially tiny little minerals that have, that have precipitated when these fluids mix. And so you get these accumulations of chimneys at various places on the seafloor. And that is, that is your hydrothermal vent. Perfect. And so, you know, when we talk about mining, what really, you know, sort of in the most general sense, how are they mined? Like, what's the physical process of doing that? Right. So these, these vents essentially can be rich in copper, zinc, gold, silver. So, you know, these are metals that are, are valuable to society and they've never been mined before. Um, the Japanese have tested some equipment to, to do this, um, but they're, there's no single way to mine them, but essentially you have to break up the rock into smaller pieces and then transport that essentially to a ship, which it would then be transported off to land somewhere to, to a smelter to extract the metal from, from the minerals. So it's a, it's a sort of an engineering problem of breaking up the rock and then transporting it either through, through pipes as like a, a slurry or you physically just lift with a bucket the rocks up to a ship. And, um, and, and this can be done at two kilometers, four kilometers, a kilometer. Um, these vents generally form quite deep. Okay. So the next sort of area of interest is these uh, cobalt-rich crusts. Same sorts of questions, you know, like what are they basically? And what does it look like to try to get them? Right. So there are metals that are dissolved in seawater very, very low concentrations, but seawater is full of all sorts of things, including metals like manganese, cobalt, copper, nickel. And certain conditions, um, these metals will slowly precipitate. And one of those conditions is the metals accumulate in, in deep water and where you have seamounts, essentially underwater volcanoes, um, water will flow up the sides of these volcanoes and they will accumulate as, as crust, which is, you could think of as almost like a concrete pavement, a coating on the rocks that form these underwater volcanoes. And, and this process is excruciatingly slow. It happens over, over millions of years, sort of you know, centimeter every million years or something like that. Um, so it's a very slow process. So around these seamount volcanoes, you get these crusts, these sort of pavements that slowly build up and they're rich in this time, some of the same metals like uh, copper, but more so uh, cobalt and nickel and manganese. So different metals from hydrothermal vents, they occur in different areas, um, but that's essentially what a, what a cobalt rich crust is. Wonderful. That's is, from what I understand, that's very similar to the process that forms polymetallic nodules, the sort of slow accumulation and deposition of metals out of seawater onto some sort of surface or structure. Um, so polymetallic nodules are sort of the, the other main thing. Where So if hydrothermal vents are sort of deep sea hot springs and the crusts sort of form on seamounts, where do nodules form? Yeah, the nodules form essentially in abyssal planes. So uh, the deep flat part 
of, uh, of the ocean floor. So the crusts and, and hydrothermal vents form in sort of mountainous areas on the seafloor, whereas the nodules form in, in the deep flat plains, very low sedimentation rates. And, and the nodules are essentially little balls, or baseballs or, or potato sized concretions. And again, it's, it's the seawater that, that has these metals in low concentrations and, and very, very slowly they form these concretions that just sit on the seafloor as, as essentially a bunch of, they just look like a bunch of balls just lying on, on the sediment at the bottom of the ocean. Wonderful. So the, yeah. the mining of them is, is very different. You don't have to break anything up and crush it up. You essentially just have to pick them up off the seafloor and then right. again, come up with some sort of efficient way to transport them up to the surface. Wonderful. So you were saying that each of these different sort of targets of interest for deep sea mining, the vents, the crusts, the nodules, they have different component metals. Uh, there's different things in them. They form in slightly different ways. When people hear about deep sea mining, one of the things you hear a lot about is, you know, we need these minerals for X. So that could be car batteries. It could be like, you know, other sorts of uh, renewable technologies, whatever. The argument is we need these metals for these purposes. So sort of of these three types of targets, which of them is, which has the most of the things that people are talking about when they talk about we need car batteries? Because if they have gold and silver and whatever, you can, you can kind of find that in various places. But if, you know, which one would be the one to go for for that specific goal? Right. That would be the nodules and the crusts. So the mass of the, the hydrothermal vents, um, those deposits, you know, copper, zinc, gold, silver, we, we've got plenty of that on land. Um, and it's well distributed globally. Um, but that's not the case necessarily, especially with things like uh, uh, cobalt, to a lesser extent, uh, nickel. Um, and these just happen to be the minerals or the metals that, that are, are very useful for making batteries. And of course, batteries is, is one of the hot topics with, with uh, renewable resources and, and electric cars and, and that sort of thing. And the, the companies that are, are pushing to mine nodules and crusts, they, they'll, they'll describe a nodule as, as basically a battery because it has a lot of the components that is required for a battery. In fact, most of the components in the nodule, there's very little waste because everything is actually quite useful from, a, from a, an industry point of view. So okay. those would be the, the targets. The other ones are less efficient, essentially, you know, potentially. They're um, less efficient. It's just the, the, the need to go to new places to find those metals is, right. is not the same. Right. So the, uh, you sort of, uh, the next question I had was, what do we need the other metals and minerals for? But it sounds like the target is really the cobalt, essentially, maybe the manganese, some of these other things, less the nickel and the gold. And this, those are like bonuses in a sense, right? So. Yeah, the, I mean, the, the narrative has kind of changed over time. When this industry first started developing, it wasn't so much about green minerals for batteries, it was more a commentary on, on mining on land, that mm -hmm. we're finding fewer deposits, they're not as big, they're not as rich, we have to dig deeper, it's becoming more expensive, we have to push into more remote areas, um, there's a resulting more potential environmental damage, right. whereas the ocean, we can negate some of those concerns, 
But I'd say in the last five years, that has definitely shifted towards we need things like nickel, cobalt, copper for right. a green economy. So that's sort of how the narrative has changed to where we are now. Right. So the last question I have for you in this sort of setup phase of the discussion is just from a, a purely technological sort of, you know, uh, mining technology perspective, how, how close are these, uh, how close is this industry technologically? It's, I don't, I'll give you a couple answers. When I, when I, because it hasn't been done yet, it's really hard to say. My, uh, I come from a family of, of engineers. And one thing I've learned in this industry is that if you throw money at engineers, they'll solve any problem. Any problem you could think of, they'll figure it out. It just takes resources to do that. I don't think the, the technology will ever be the limiting factor. But where we are now is there are companies who are testing technology for the nodules and there are companies that are testing um, technology for the crusts and for the uh, hydrothermal vent. So right now we're essentially in testing phase. Okay. So and, and the concepts are, there's all sorts of different concepts. There's, you know, we, ha we haven't converged on here's one method right. that's probably gonna work. People are trying all sorts of different things. So soon, maybe we're working, they're working on it basically. So yeah. thank you. Yeah, thank you. So I think now we all know what deep sea mining is. So the next thing I want to do is kind of move out from the seafloor and just kind of go up a layer, um, which is where Verena Tinnicliffe is going to come in and she's going to help us understand some of the, you know, some of the, the, the issues around this aside from extraction, then what basically. So uh, Verena Tinnicliffe is an expert on deep sea life. And I noticed, uh, I was reading that you actually have 10 deep sea species named after you. So obviously quite a lot of involvement in, uh, in the field to have tens, I don't have any species named after me. Um, but so this uh, with you, I very sort of very briefly, the sort of sidebar version of the, the textbook chapter go through uh, the three different types of targets. We're gonna spend a lot more time on the nodules because I know that that's the one that's sort of imminent. Um, in, the, in uh, industry, it seems, and that you've expressed is sort of the one that you'd like to talk about the most. But so just very briefly, the hydrothermal vents that people are looking at and testing mining, um, what kinds of environment, what's the environment like, biologically speaking, what, what's down there? Okay, my first uh, comment is that for all three of these deposits, there are special conditions in the environment that have led to the formation of the deposits of interest. And those same conditions are what is, have led to the formation of special ecosystems at those deposits. So for hydrothermal vents, what we find is that it is of an extreme habitat. It's a very difficult place to live because of the temperatures because of all that nasty stuff and heavy metals and stuff spewing out and lots of sulfide in the water, so not much oxygen. And um, it is, but on the flip side, it is a place, but because of all of that stuff spewing out, there is a source of energy that um, microbes have used to be able to 
harness the process to create organic carbon. So we call it chemosynthesis. It's an analogous process to photosynthesis. And what we end up with is a large primary productivity at hydrothermal vents in the form of microbial mats, lots of lots of bacteria and archaea. <clears throat> that is the basis of a food chain in which there are very specific organisms that are able to deal with the extreme habitat and extreme conditions. They have evolved to live at hydrothermal vents. Um, probably 80% of them don't live anywhere else in the world but at hydrothermal vents. And they ultimately feed on, through its short food chain, on these bacteria that grow very rapidly at hydrothermal vents. Thus, the hot vents can sponsor a very dense um, biomass, highly localized right around the chimneys and the fluid sources. Wonderful. And they're spectacular and, and just beautiful to look at, as you were shown by the Hakai intro. With yeah, the I was just going to say our loading screen had the little worms <laughs> yeah. on them and stuff. Yeah. Um, so the cobalt rich crusts, as we just learned, are on seamounts. So I know because we've been reporting on this for ages, seamounts are places of like extreme biological density. They're very important. So what is sort of the, the biology of your average seamount? Obviously it's gonna depend on where you are in the world, but like what is a seamount ecosystem like? Where the your, av your average seamount is really quite deep, but the seamounts where the deposits form tend to be the shallower ones. Um, so tending the most of the deposits are above 2000 meters. And when you get the shallower seamounts, that is where uh, you get the formation. The same thing that the water is doing, depositing metals, it's also bringing food and bringing a lot of transport of goodies across the top of the seamount. And therefore, what we end up with is dense forests of corals and sponges, which then foster the growth of associated communities of other organisms. They become nursery areas for uh, a variety of creatures such as commercial fish stocks. And because there's food there, you end up with um, a water column that's also fed and you get a lot of uh, migrating species that use the seamounts. So most of the interest currently for the cobalt crust mining is in the Northwest Pacific, so over near Japan and Russia. And uh, but unfortunately, that's a reason we region we know the least about. And I would just finally comment that the seamounts in Canadian waters are now recognized to really be important parts of the marine ecosystem. And they are being uh, Fisheries and Oceans Canada is um, beginning to move them into a marine protected area. OK, so so far, both targets of high, you know, biological diversity, density, uh, unique ecosystems. Um, so, and you've mentioned in the past that you think polymetallic nodule mining is sort of the, the one to talk about the most. Um, and so one of the reasons that we're talking about all of this right now is because a Vancouver-based company called the Metals Company, which people who pay attention a lot will know that they're formerly deep green and a lot of those people were formerly Nautilus. So it's a long chain of people involved in this industry based out of Canada. Canada is sort of one of the biggest players in this 
emerging field along with Belgium, uh, which is a great thing that class is here. Uh, but so the metals company likes to say that the seafloor where these nodules are found is a, you know, a quote, desert-like wasteland with limited life. And when we, people think of the abyssal plain, maybe that's what they're picturing. Um, is that true? Is it a desert-like wasteland with limited life? Okay, I'll just presage my uh, response with a comment that Canada as a state is not a big player in this. Right, right, right. right. It so Maybe happens companies. the metals company is registered in Canada. Is it, is it a desert? No, not at all. Um, one of the, we know lots about hydrothermal vents, relatively speaking. We know something about how seamounts work, but we know almost nothing about the abyssal plain, which is in the specific areas where nodules form. There's lots of abyssal plains in the world, but nodules only form in certain abyssal plains with very, very low amount of food coming in. And the reason the nodules are on the surface is that there's hardly any sediments coming down to cover them up. There's very little ocean production up above, so little food coming down. But the nodules themselves form surfaces for organisms. And the communities that have developed in this area, specifically, say, the clarion Clipperton zone, which is between Mexico and Hawaii, animals like hot vents, they have evolved to adapt to those specific conditions. The amount of research in this area, which is vast, is extremely small and really only started in the last 10 years. And this is, this is the problem we face. Every single research cruise that goes out there, mostly I would say sponsored by, um, by state contractors, so these aren't necessarily the, these aren't company contractors, but state contractors. Um, they are finding that almost every sample they take, of course, something new comes up. Mm -hmm. So it becomes um, a beginning growing understanding that this is an ecosystem specific to this area, as far as we know, and is adapted to living on or between nodules. Um, everything seems to be new, really, really having a hard time understanding how everything connects and how it works together. So, so what do you see when you look down there? Just mm -hmm. lastly, it's, you don't see a whole lot, except uh, you'll get beautiful sponges here or a little coral over there. But most of the life is between and on the nodules and fairly themselves. small. Yeah. So, um, so, you know, life on the bottom of the ocean is sort of famously slow. Animals live hundreds of years, they barely move, they're eating the sort of scraps that fall down in the marine snow. The nodules themselves grow incredibly slowly. You know, it's, I, I think it's like a centimeter a million years kinds of things. So if the uh, life is adapted, to living specifically on the nodules. And um, at the Natural History Museum in London, they have a nodule that grew around a megalodon tooth. So this shark's been extinct for millions of years. And it's sort of like a snowflake. There's a, a nucleus and this metal sort of glom onto it. So if it's a megalodon tooth at the core of it, it's old. 
obviously. So if life is slow, nodules are slow, it's all very tenuous. If you go down and pick these things up, how it's obviously going to take quite a long time. If ever, could it ever rebuild? So when deep sea mining was first proposed back in the 1960s, it was thought these nodules were a renewable resource and they would bounce back within years. So you're right. It, they're, they're gone forever as far as humans and the ecosystem is concerned. Um, so that's removal of the nodules. Uh, a big concern for many um, scientists is that as you go through that area with these house-sized machines that are going to be vacuuming them up, the sediment plumes that are being put out and also the, the um, tailings or the sediment is dewatered from the ships. This is crystal clear water that all has to be disposed. And so that's going to cover up more habitat. No, this is, this is a habitat that's been, is going to be removed. And we have to decide whether or not that's important habitat. Do we care about it? Uh, I've heard it say from, said from, from ISA that, well, we can afford to lose a, a small fraction of the seafloor in this process. Sorry, I just got distracted by looking at the Q&A questions. But so that, I mean, that sort of feeds into the, the sort of the last two questions that I had for, for you. Um, you mentioned, you know, the, the sediment plumes and this kind of thing. You know, there's something that you catch on to when talking about climate change and these sort of systemic shifts in yes. planetary processes, right? So my previous writing was a lot about earth systems and geophysics. So it's sort of a, a, a sort of big brain question that we probably don't have an answer to, but is there a potential with this sort of deep sea mining, sediment plumes kicking up things, affecting carbon cycling, whatever, to disrupt any sort of large systems, currents, you know, the El Nino is in, I mean, that's extrapolating and whatever, but you get the idea, like, is there this risk of like a tipping point or like disrupting something that maybe we're not even thinking about. Yes, you raise a, an extremely good point, which has been many of the worries is that the fundamental ecosystem processes that, which is that the ecosystem service, what is the ocean, this deep ocean doing for the rest of the health of this planet and our own health? And uh, this is a very difficult topic to argue because we don't have the information. So, but we can say that when it comes to climate change, one of the huge services the ocean does for us is absorbing two thirds of the excess carbon dioxide we put in, into the atmosphere goes into the ocean. It's taken up by the little creatures on the surface and that carbon goes down and is buried in the deep sea sediments. And that's the service that the deep sea provides and all the microbial ecosystems in the bottom the little creatures that are burying. Now there, I'm going, so this is something that is a big concern because of, okay, and then what connects back up? How are these bottom ecosystems feeding back up to the surface and what nutrients might be going back or 
just the organism um, larvae themselves going up and feeding fish that we're going to rely on. Mm -hmm. So you can draw all these pictures that we have from the, from the nodule areas. You just have very little data, but little some experiments that the, the Germans have done have shown that even disrupting a small amount of sediment, you change the behavior of the microbes in that sediment for years and years. So 30 years later, they see that the microbial, microbial populations have not come back and doing what they normally do in the deep sea, just by turning over the sediment. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of unknowns and there's a lot of potential effects, downstream consequences. There's stories that people, I mean, I'm trying to keep us a little bit on track on time, but there's stories about worries about fisheries, saying where this plume goes, do animals rely on this? How could it, it spill over into large effects? And it's hard to say because we just don't know. That's sort of the crux of the, the whole dilemma, at least from my it's, opinion. It's just very, it can be very difficult to put out a we don't know argument to convince <laughs> people. And so we try really hard as um, scientists and biologists studying these systems to talk about what we do know to try and just uh, when you're talking to say delegates at the International Seabed Authority, you try to talk about what we do know in the systems um, because nobody wants to hear about what we don't know. However, mm -hmm. that is a fundamental factor in this case. Mm -hmm. Because if you're gonna start something, you'd like to know. Um, so, I mean, you mentioned the ISA there, which obviously bridges us over to our next uh, level of discussion, going, zooming out another, another rung on this, this ladder of deep sea mining. And so the person who's gonna help us walk through and understand some of these uh, policy, regulatory, structural decisions, decision-making processes is Klaas Willer. So uh, Klaas uh, started his career in piracy, um, not being a pirate, but studying pirates. Uh, but since then he's used his expertise on maritime law and shifted into studying the legal dimensions of deep sea mining. So with John and Verena, we really focused on sort of the th three forms of deep sea mining, you know, the vents, the crust, the nodules. With you, I want to add those other two aspects that, to give us our six types of deep sea mining, which is, uh, so we're going to look at how the laws and regulations change depending on where the mining is taking place. And there's sort of two broad categories of where this could take place. There's international waters and a country's territorial water or its economic exclusive zone. So in the same way, very, very briefly, what is international waters? What is an economic exclusive zone? Uh, well, uh, you indeed, uh, it's very good to point out that there are basically two kinds here, uh, legally speaking, because we indeed have uh, zones that are within national jurisdiction of coastal states. And we also have well, those zones that are beyond national jurisdiction. When we're specifically talking about the, the deep sea beds and the subsoil beyond national jurisdiction, we're talking about the area. So the area with the capital A uh, as defined uh, in the Law of the Sea Convention of 1982. When we're within national jurisdiction, indeed, we have the territorial sea of the coastal state that 
uh, can extend up to 12 nautical miles from uh, the, the coastline. Uh, and uh, you mentioned the exclusive economic zone, but what is uh, very important also here is the maritime zone called the continental shelf. This one differs, the legal continental shelf differs in some way from the, the, the geological concept, uh, but this one can uh, extend uh, as well, you could say as a default legal continental shelf, you could extend it up to 200 nautical miles uh, from the coastline, uh, but it is possible to, to go even further. Uh, and this, this is all based on, uh, well, some quite technical criteria. Um, and then you could extend the continental shelf even further, but of course, with also an, an absolute maximum that is there. Uh, so these are the, the, the two types you could say in, in, um, in legal terms. And of course, this uh, is uh, accompanied by a, a totally different regime. Right. So that's sort of where I'm wanting to go with this. So within a country's national water, let's say Canada wants to mine the Canadian deep sea, you just said. So in that sort of situation where you're dealing with a country looking to mine its own territory, who gets to decide whether deep sea mining goes forward? Well, uh, then of, it's well simply said, it's all in the hands of, of the coastal state. Uh, so the coastal state in its territorial sea, of course, it has it, its, its sovereignty uh, and within uh, the exclusive economic zone. So uh, this mo most of the time coincides as a zone with, with the continental shelf. There it can also uh, exercise exclusive sovereign rights to exploit the resources there. So they can decide uh, on the legislation. However, there are some, some international limitations, of course. So uh, well, all states are bound by a, a general duty to, to protect the marine environment. Of course, this is, is quite an abstract um, obligation. Um, and also, but this is already um, a little bit more in detail, um, when the extended continental shelf, so beyond the 200 nautical miles, would be uh, mined by a coastal state, then they would also be obligated uh, to uh, contribute uh, to, uh, well, basically provide contributions to the International Seabed Authority, which would then be distributed among mankind as a whole. So you have some international interference within those national regimes, you could say. Right, but largely if Japan wants to mine Japan, Japan has to ask Japan. It's, they don't ask everyone, what do you think? In international waters, obviously it gets a little more complicated. Uh, and that's where the regulations, which are uh, currently being developed and devised uh, for when and where and how mining in international waters can take place. They're currently under development by a branch of the United Nations called the International Seabed Authority, which we've touched on a couple of times here. So in that sort of one paragraph summary of what is the International Seabed Authority? Who is the International Seabed Authority? Like, who's involved in it? Well, the International Seabed Authority, the, the member states are basically all the, the same states that are a party to the Law of the Sea Convention, also others who would have uh, exceeded. Uh, it is an intergovernmental organization. It has its seat in, in Kingston, Jamaica. 
And uh, like you said, they are the ones responsible for uh, issuing, for adopting regulations, rules and procedures on uh, deep sea mining beyond national jurisdiction. Uh, so uh, they already have issued uh, regulations on prospecting and exploration. So you could say that first two phases of deep sea mining, uh, but the, explo the exploitation regulations, so real commercial mining and extraction of the resources, this, uh, these regulations have not yet been adopted. Um, this could happen uh, sooner rather than later, uh, but up till now, well, uh, this has not been the case. So the mining code is, is not completed uh, yet. Uh, so the ISA is this group of, it's a branch of the UN, it's made up of member states, and they have the decision-making power on uh, allowing exploration permits in the future, allowing exploitation permits, devising the regulations. Who gave the ISA this power? Like, where did they get the, uh, the power to basically legislate most of the planet, in a sense? Yes. Then we also have to get back to the, to the 1982 United Nations Convention on, on the Law of the Sea. So in, in this convention, you have the whole legal basis for this, this organization. Uh, of course, we need to mention that there's also uh, an implementation agreement uh, that was adopted in 1994 and that changed, uh, well, and adapted uh, a number of provisions and rules um, of, of part 11 of the Law of the Sea Convention, which governs uh, the international deep sea bed, the area. But so there you can find the legal basis there, the whole mandate of, of the, uh, the International Seabed Authority is, is vested there. So and then, sorry. They have a lot of, they have a, quite a broad mandate uh, and this has already led to, to, to questions, of course, of how far this, this uh, can go. Because mm -hmm. it's, it's basically this one group that's deciding the future of this whole thing. Um, how do they make their decisions? Well, uh, in, in, you have a number of organs within the, the International Seabed Authority. Of course, you have a secretariat. Uh, you have a council, which is basically, you could say, uh, more or less the, 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 the executive branch. Uh, you have the, the general, well, the assembly of, of the, the International Seabed Authority, which is basically the, the legislative a branch like like the, the the parliament you could say um, and the council also has a, a sub organ which is called the legal and technical commission the ltc uh, which is a body of experts um, and they are actually the ones that uh, in practice have quite uh, a lot of influence on both uh, the regulations the development of the of the rules of the procedures but also on those applications, because they, uh, these experts are the ones that are going to give a recommendation to the council. And uh, this is not often, of course, overturned. So the LTC has, has a lot of influence um, and the council then takes uh, a lot of the, the important decisions, but on those recommendations of, of the LTC. Mm -hmm. So it's a small committee within the ISA that kind of vets the proposals and then it goes and it tends historically to whatever the LTC decides tends to kind of happen. Um, 
it seems like. So yes. John said uh, earlier when I asked him, you know, technologically speaking, deep sea mining is like not here, but it could be here if if the money was put in to develop it. It could kind of it could move along. Um, the policy side, it's this it's the coastal waters international water split. But so for a uh, country mining the deep sea in its own waters, it could basically start tomorrow if a country decided to. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, indeed. Uh, so we have uh, a number of countries that have already quite advanced legislation in place, quite some, some even quite very recent legislation also. Uh, so there, of course, the, the, the legal framework is, is there, uh, which is not the case uh, in the international context beyond national, jury, uh, mm -hmm. national jurisdiction. So in the context of the ISA and the area, we still have to wait for those exploitation regulations. Right. Um, but of course, uh, well, in, in national jurisdiction, you also have, a, it depends upon the countries, you also have a number of obstacles still. There. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's, uh, it's largely up to the country itself. With international waters, we know it's up to the ISA. And a thing that happened over the summer is that the Republic of Nauru partnered with the metals company, that Vancouver-based company, and they triggered a clause in the ISA's regulations called the two-year rule. And this is a trigger, maybe we'll get into why it exists as a trigger later, I haven't looked at the Q&A questions, but it's a trigger that gives the ISA two years to finish writing the rules or uh, companies can go ahead with whatever the rules are at the time that the trigger runs it, so after this two-year period. So does this mean that we have two years, like from June when this happened, before like the machines are on the seafloor? Or is there another layer that comes after that? Like, is it two years until it starts basically, or is there more? It will still, even after the exploitation regulations would, would be uh, adopted, we, we also have a, a whole a wide array of standards and guidelines that need to be adopted. and. They aim to also uh, adopt these, uh, well, at least um, you have different phases, but at least uh, a lot of them will already need to be adopted also when the exploitation regulations are adopted. But then I, I, I assume it will still take some time. So this, this will not be, uh, I think, the, the, the actual start. Uh, but of course, we're now we, we, the ISA is under a lot of uh, pressure. Uh, with that two-year rule that has been triggered. And there's also a lot of uncertainty, uh, legal uncertainty, because like you said, uh, the, the mining code needs to be finished within two years time. So mm -hmm. June, 2023, that would be the end of June, 2023. If this is not the case, we're getting in a quite, I think a quite risky, uh, dangerous situation, uh, because then um, if there is an application for exploitation activities, the ISA would, despite not having adopted exploitation regulations, would nevertheless need to consider uh, an, an application for exploitation activities. Uh, and it would need to, um, if, posit if positively advised, would need to uh, provisionally approve uh, these applications, but also on the basis of, well, the relevant treaties, but also on the basis of provisionally adopted regulations and rules. Mm -hmm. And so these are the, those two pro 
provisionally approve uh, that process and the provisionally adopted regulations, it's quite unclear on both counts what this would exactly entail. Mm -hmm. And that is why it's, it's uh, it would, well, it, it, it's quite risky if we're getting in that situation. So I have a couple more questions for you and then we'll get to the, we've already pushed a little bit long, uh, but I have a couple questions before the Q&A. Um, they're kind of questions of legal responsibility because from my understanding, a lot of this stuff, it, when you're talking about countries and contractors and sponsoring states and international corporations, it gets kind of messy. So when we're talking about legal responsibility, you have a sponsoring state like the Republic of Nehru and you have a company like the metals company and they're going to be mining in the Pacific Ocean right and um, let's say something goes wrong you have this sediment plume and wipes out of whatever something happens who's responsible is it is it Nehru is it Canada because it's the company centered here is it some like who who's responsible if something goes wrong well, that's a very good, but also quite a, a complex uh, legal question to answer, mm -hmm. because indeed you have that concept of a sponsoring state, and, and that sponsoring state basically needs to ensure compliance by the the, the entity it's it sponsors. Uh, but there was an advisory opinion in 2011 by the the ITLOS, the International Tribunal uh, for the Law of the Sea, and the Seabed Disputes Chamber uh, in that advisory opinion. Uh, basically um, stated that, well, they need to take all the, those sponsoring states need to take uh, all necessary and appropriate measures to ensure compliance um, with, with uh, the treaty, but also with the, the contract. Um, but they also stated that uh, when those measures have been taken, those measures that are reasonably appropriate within the legal order of that state, uh, that they cannot be considered automatically liable or responsible um, for uh, any damage or any uh, liability caused by um, any acts of the sponsored entity. So if they to call necessary and appropriate measures, they should in principle be in the clear. Although right. it is all, of course, very much the question what those necessary and appropriate measures would need to be then. Right. So in our not quite hypothetical scenario, can a government, say the one in Canada, do they hold any authority or power over companies based out of them operating in foreign waters on behalf of the sponsoring state? So let's say, let's say deep sea mining is politically unpopular in Canada and Canada bans deep sea mining. Would a Canadian company be able to conduct this business? What power does a company country have over a company based out of it if that company is partnered with a different country? Well, I, I think purely in terms of international law the, and in terms of the, the international deep sea battery regime, there's not really a, a bond right now, for example, between uh, the metals company and Canada, uh, because then they will just look at the sponsoring state. They, in, in this case, the metals company, well, has obtained three contracts uh, within, um, within the area. 
Uh, and so they would need, if they look at a state, they would need, need to look at, at Kiribati, at, at Tonga, and at, at Nauru, the three states sponsoring those contracts. Uh, and that is, of course, a, a, a bit problematic, I would say, uh, because here, well, those sponsoring state, the, the whole concept of the sponsoring state has eroded a little bit uh, because of the fact that the ISA does not look any further than the, the, the incorporation of the, of the company, which might be like in this case, a subsidiary of a, of a company based in, a, in another state. So mm -hmm. that is quite problematic. So it sounds like if the sponsoring state takes all required steps, they're not responsible if something goes wrong. And the country that the company is based out of, if something goes wrong, they're not responsible if something goes wrong. So I guess the company is responsible if something goes wrong? Yes, they, they would, of course, uh, be the first one to look at. Uh, but the whole liability question is, is well, we, we talked about uncertainty also in the, in the biological context and the impact. Well, here in, in the legal context, there's also a lot of uncertainty uh, what would happen if if there is uh, an accident or if there is well major damage of course uh, to to <laughs> the to the environment or biodiversity because of just normal operations so that is still quite a complex uh, and, and and quite uh, hard to to answer in in, uh, in legal terms right but the sponsoring state carries a very big uh, responsibility there uh, although it is questionable whether they would be held accountable. I just have one more question, then we'll, we'll open it up. Um, so Verena was also... Uh... Yeah, I just want to ask my question because it's, it's, uh, it flows out of what we were just talking about, which is that in other sorts of maritime activities, shipping, fishing, whatever, you have this dilemma, this issue called flags of convenience, right? So right now, if I buy a ship and I my ship is subject to laws. I get a flag from a country and that country is responsible for legislating enforcing how I behave, right? So, and I'm subject to the laws of the flag whose country I am flying. Some countries are, they'll sell their flag, but they're not particularly interested in enforcing anything. So that's what people talk about when they talk about the problem of flags of convenience. Um, is that you can get their rules, which maybe are better for you, they're more lax, whatever, and then you're not really subject to enforcement because the country's not interested. So what is preventing deep sea mining with this sponsoring state corporation, whatever, from turning into a kind of flags of convenience situation? Well, I think um, with regard to the normal motives for a flag of, of convenience in shipping, um, there we're mostly talking about indeed like uh, less strict regulations, less, less strict standards and, and no enforcement. I, I do hope that this would not be the main problem when we're seeing the same phenomenon uh, among sponsoring states. But what I'm very, what, what I'm mostly worried about here in this context is that we have certain sponsoring states, um, for example, Tonga, Nauru, that are sponsoring, uh, well, basically a, a subsidiary of, of the metals company. So they're basically sponsoring a company that is based in a developed state. 
Uh, and nevertheless, uh, that company based in a developed state will have access to privileges that were attributed to developing states. And that's where the whole system, the, the common heritage of mankind concept uh, is, gets eroded, gets, uh, is, is quite is challenged, uh, I would say. Mm -hmm. I had a question about that. Let me just pull that up. Also, yeah, we need to get to some of the Q&A questions I'm being told to kind of push along a little bit. Um, so you were just mentioning the common benefit of humanity. How, like, what is that as a concept? Oh, well, I guess we'll do that question and then we'll, yeah. So this, this idea of the common benefit of humanity, the ISA is mandated with regulating the deep sea international waters for the benefit of humanity. How is, that's one of the wrinkles that's sort of, you know, causing a lot of this, these uncertainties with um, with the development of the regulations. How would that, what is that, how does that play out? Like, am I gonna get a dollar every year in the mail as like my share of the deep sea mining? Well, first of all, the common heritage of mankind, the whole concept, the principle is, is well, it has a lot of components. So participation of, of developing states, promoting that, for example, is, is, is one aspect. Uh, but that equitable sharing aspect of the proceeds of, of deep sea mining within the area is definitely also one of them. So activities in the area should in principle be carried out for the benefit of mankind as a whole. Uh, and that is why the, so the payment mechanism that still needs to be uh, set up and also the distribution mechanism that would then uh, equitably divide and distribute those, those, that revenue among all member states, that would be a, a very important aspect. And of course, if I say distribute, you also have, uh, it is also important there that uh, developing states would have some kind of priority, of course, would not, would not be equally distributed among all member states. There would be some priority for developing states. Um, and that system is just like the, the exploitation regulations as such still needs to be set up. So it's also, uh, I'm quite uh, curious to see how they will uh, shape this, uh, this regime, this mechanism. And, and it will be, uh, well, we will have to see then if it really achieves that objective of, of uh, uh, well, making sure that that's, those activities are carried out for the benefit of, of mankind as a whole. Mm -hmm. so, so there's a lot there's a, a lot here um i want to get to some of the questions that readers have had you know we've kind of laid i'm already way over time and i'm sorry for that there's just a lot to talk about we've laid a foundation i think everyone is on the same page we understand what deep sea mining is how far away it is what's at risk what's up in the air who you know these sorts of things one of the questions is sort of a you know this this discussion of batteries and that kind of thing if and this is sort of, you know, whoever wants to, to answer these questions. Um, how, you know, if we're talking about nodule mining, let's say, how, how, much, how much of the area would we need to mine to get like 50 years worth of batteries? Like to, to help us through the climate transition phase that people are pushing for of the sort of total, like what, what proportion are we looking at? Currently, in the uh, Clarion-Clipperton zone, 20% of 
the area is in contracts. And another 20% is reserved for other people coming in. And these are the prime areas where there's nodules. Um, it is actually incredibly difficult to make those projections at the moment. Um, and we seem to be riding a whole lot on the projections put out by the metals company, a single, so, uh, you know, one or a few sources. And I would want to put in here that most of the, half of the contractors are actually state entities. And they're worried about their own supplies of metals within their own states. And it's, it's, not, a, it, it's not about a company that's trying to make a whole lot of money. Um, the metals company, when it put its SPAC out, uh, it's, it's offering in New York, um, claims that a lot of its profits are going to come from nickel. And so, and the second most will be from manganese um, in the manganese nodules. And so they're looking at a 30-year timeline. That's how long the contracts are. But it's all predicated on assumptions about batteries and battery requirements are likely to change. Well, that actually leads into another question that um, is here, which is, you know, recently uh, large technology companies, Tesla, Samsung, et cetera, have announced a shift away from cobalt, which is one of the kind of core things. They're shifting away from using cobalt batteries into other types of batteries. Um, Given that, you know, does that sort of change the math on whether or not this is a needed thing or was it, an, you know, ever a needed thing? I think, John, we haven't heard from you in about 45 minutes. I don't know if you want to talk about like, you know, you said the, uh, the other kinds of minerals are quite abundant on land and easy, evenly distributed and cobalt kind of seems to be the thing that's really concentrating these nodules. If we're not looking for cobalt, there's still the same sort of like, you know, impetus. Oh, well, in the end, this is the mining industry. So it's supply, demand, and economics, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, if we, could, if we could figure out iron batteries, and people are trying to do that, um, then the demand for cobalt will go down. We're not there yet. And so for now, people are building a lot of cobalt batteries. Right. You know, cobalt is an interesting one because the amount of cobalt that we think lies with the nodules on the seafloor is, I don't know, it's four or five times the total amount of cobalt that we know is recoverable on land right now. So in terms of just amount of metals, you know, excluding, you know, the, how do we do it and what will the environmental effects, just amount of metals on the seafloor, there's, there's a lot of cobalt. Where do we get our cobalt right now? Well, most of it actually comes from the Congo. And so it's not necessarily the most secure source. And there's a lot of accusation of, uh, for example, child labor being used in the Congo. So countries or companies wanting to pull away from cobalt doesn't necessarily have to do with the seafloor at all. Right. Um, it, it has to do with, with um, security of supply and projection of demand. And, you know, the battery technology is moving very quickly. So, you know, there's possibilities for iron and other things to replace cobalt, but for now, cobalt is what we need. Mm -hmm. 
the, you sort of, you, you were mentioning um, Congo and, you know, there's sort of various different arguments for, uh, especially coming from some of these, the proponents of deep sea mining and so counter, whatever. Um, it, it, it always seems billed as sort of a, a least worst option. And I don't think a lot of people are pushing for it as the best option. They're sort of pushing for it as the least worst option. And I know, so Verena, we were talking before this that you're looking into sort of a comparative analysis of terrestrial mining, deep sea mining, these sorts of things. So one of the questions that people have is, you know, um, how do they compare, right? Like, how should we be thinking about comparing these two things? What are the metrics that we'd be looking at? And do we have any, you know, insight into whether one really is maybe more environmentally friendly or not, or more socially just or not? Like, how can we start to begin comparing these two very different processes with the same kind of outcome? Incredibly difficult to do. And it, there have been some publications out there, um, but we're talking about an industry on land that has a 4,000 year history and something that hasn't started and that we don't know what the effects are. And so it is incredibly difficult to do a scientific comparison, which uh, I'm part of a group that's trying to do that. And we're finding it's apples and oranges, apples and oranges. And so, uh, and we're very skeptical of some of the, the published comments that have been out there because we're seeing how difficult it is to do. Um, so it, one, one of the things that's so easy to talk about is what we can see on land which, and versus what we cannot see at all in the deep sea and don't know what the connections are. Um, so it really depends. So the, to try and <laughs> be succinct, um, to try and compare the concept of biodiversity and function lost in an ecosystem that is essentially pristine versus the continued losses in ecosystems that have been impacted by humans for thousands, well, hundreds at least, if not thousands of years. And it's a matter of a, partly a value judgment. Um, and I'm not going to give you an incredibly clear answer at the moment because the team is still trying to work on how to make that comparison. The lack of data versus disparate data is really hampering that comparison. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's a, a, some sort of themes in the questions that I'm going to try to interpolate a little bit, which is, um, you know, we talked about the sediment plumes, we talked about the potential for sort of uh, pushing systems around. Um, do we know the connection between the deep sea ecosystems that would potentially be or would be disrupted by these processes to the larger ocean ecosystem? Like, would there be ramifications up the food chain, higher in the ocean, closer to shore? What would, you know, the kinds of effects that we would feel on, say, fisheries or biodiversity? If you want a finger on an immediate effect, <clears throat> that's probably going to be quite difficult, but it's certainly all of these mining actions are going to affect the um, interactions of the deep sea with the surface, which comes through transport of 
food and materials um, back and forth. It will also affect the transport of toxins um, in the system, uh, especially through things like the sediment plumes. One of the things that we're uh, many people are scientists are really worried about are the cumulative, the compounding effects of adding mining onto the fishing pressures and onto the climate change pressures. So think about, say, seamounts in particular already under huge fishing and climate stresses. As temperatures go up, oxygen goes down. And the deep sea, as you noted, a very stable, very slow um, system, which just needs a small change in temperature and things get really badly set, um, put off. Migration patterns of large mammals are, are likely going to be affected, especially by the activities. So just a few examples. So we have an interesting question um, about regulation class, which is, and the rules are not set yet for the mining code and the exploitation guidelines. Maybe there's some precedents that would lead us to a dis, uh, an understanding of this question anyway, which is that, let's say uh, a company gets a permit within like, let's say five years and they have their permit and they are given the go ahead to start mining. Will the rules and regulations that they're subject to evolve over the lifetime of that endeavor? Or is this sort of like a grandfathering thing where like, well, we were given this permit. Is there, are people talking about like setting the rules up to, to because there's so many unknowns to evolve as we learn more if we're spending time down there to adjust. I think that that would be quite desirable, of course, to 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 make sure that the, if the situation or the knowledge of, uh, I mean, changes uh, that that regulations can also change with it. Uh, but of course, when a company, for example, or or the state, um, applies uh, for a plan of work to to the ISA and this gets approved, then this is. Uh, well, this is adopted in the form of a contract. So then you have a contract between the ISA and the, the other entity that can be a state, can be a non-state actor. And it is, of course, very hard. Uh, once you have that contract, uh, you have specific rules also embedded in that contract. And this uh, cannot just change like that. So that would be very hard. And the regulations that are in place at that moment would be the ones governing those um, activities um, and of course I think if you would ask those contractors they would also be uh, saying that we uh, started our operations under those conditions uh, and so these are not uh, allowed to change anymore uh, of course uh, it would be uh, certainly in a situation that we're in right now when we're we're not yet at a point where we can say we can we can map the whole impact. It would be wise to to be able to to make sure that this those regulations that are uh, applied that those can change. But this would, in legal uh, terms, it would would be very uh, unusual. So the last question that I have here, I think um, we'll go to John. Just we haven't heard you again. Um, you know, we were talking about the nodules and the the crests, but we were we started this whole discussion talking about hydrothermal vents. And while most of the effort right now is on 
nodules because that's the sort of one that's pushing forward the fastest, it seems. People are still looking at events and the cobalt-rich crest. One um, of the viewers asked an interesting question about hydrothermal vents. We've discussed the role and the unique biota that live there and all these things. Are there, are there dead vents? Are there vents that are no longer biologically active? And is there a risk of like going to get those ones and not, you know, ignore the ones where the worms are? Are there, are there extinct, you know, the way that there are extinct hot springs? Are there extinct vents? Uh, yeah, that's a that's a, an excellent question. And, and the simple answer is is yes. So vents have a finite lifespan. And after a certain time, you know, just the, the heat runs out or the, or the fluid goes somewhere else and, and they, they die and, and um, they can no longer support those, those chemosynthetic organisms that Verena was talking about. And the way it looks like the regulations are evolving is that it may be the case, and it seems like it likely will be the case, that there will be a ban on exploiting the active vents. And so that leaves the inactive vents. So the problem is, is this, we, the way we find these deposits on the seafloor is by finding, uh, hunting out the hydrothermal plume. So, you know, the fluid coming up and all that smoke we talked about, that spreads out for kilometers. And you can, you can detect that in, in the water and that allows us to target these vent sites. That's how we find them. If there's a dead vent site, there's no hydrothermal plume. So we have to come up with different ways, new ways. Um, and that's a very active um, sort of uh, subject of, of, of research right now is, is how do we find, because we don't know much about them because we can't find them. We don't know, we have a pretty good idea as to how many vents, active vents there are on the seafloor and their, their, their distribution. Um, but we don't have that for inactive vents. So are, is there 10 times as much material at inactive vents as there are as active vents? The same amount, less, 100 times? Um, we don't know. And, uh, but that, so, so in terms of mining hydrothermal vents, okay, it looks like we're gonna actually avoid mining the active vents because we don't wanna destroy these very unique ecosystems. So, okay, we can then move and target the inactive vents, but we don't know where they are. We don't know how to find them. And we don't know how much of it's on the seafloor. And we don't actually know what lives on them. There's probably a very specialized ecosystem that inhabits inactive vents. We know even less about that than any of you know, the crust, the nodules, the active vents. Right. So a lot of work to do. Right. So. It seems like unknown, we don't know, is sort of a theme that pervades this whole sphere. Um, last question I have for class, and then I want to kind of give you guys a chance to, if you have any anything that you want to leave the audience with, like a, the one point that you wish people would walk away with or whatever. But so the last question that I have for class, which is given the sort of complicated regulatory structure and all the different players that are involved and who has you know, power, where and when and what it's very murky, in a sense. But let's say that I, not as a journalist, just as a person, let's say that I have a lot of thoughts about deep sea mining, and I really care. And I want to tell someone in power, 
who should I talk to? Like, do I call the UN? Do I call my government? Like who, who is able to influence this going forward? influencing policy or, or influencing individual decisions. Um, I don't know what exactly would be the question. If you're talking about policy within the international deep sea bed regime, of course, everything is vested in the ISA and the same goes for the decisions. Um, so, well, I hope there, if, well, that it's not that, that easy to, 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 to influence those processes. But, but like I said, within the ISA, the LTC, of course, carries a lot of influence and power, uh, I would say. And, and that's a, a body of experts, which, um, which of course, they, they all have a certain nationality, but they uh, are there. Their function is, is, has nothing to do with the country. They do not represent their, their country in, in that mm -hmm. legal and technical commission. But they, well, eventually you could say they, they, they call the shots by making their recommendations. And, and that, that composition of the LTC has also uh, already led to, to some criticism, both the composition in terms of expertise, which is present there, but also in terms of, of geographical distribution. Uh, and so that is still, uh, well, un under discussion right now also how they would like to solve this. But uh, in terms of exerting influence, well, you would need to be in beyond national jurisdiction, deep sea mining, then you would need to be somewhere in the ISA talking to, to people over there. I, but that's, I hope this is not uh, common practice. But if I have, you know, if the ISA is made up of representatives from member states, maybe, maybe if I call the right person, they could call the right person to call the right person to call that person who's then on the council. Oh. There's, it's ultimately the regulations have to be approved by council, which are made, is made up of um, member states, as you say, and then approved by the assembly, which are all signatories to UNCLOS. So if you would like to have your voice heard, connect to your representative in your country's um, government and make your opinions known. So we went twice as long as we were supposed to. And I'm sorry, it was very interesting. I didn't, I mean, I have a clock on, but I didn't really notice how quickly the time was going. But as we wrap up, I just wanna, um, let's start with John and then Verena in class order that we kind of went in. What, in a couple of sentences, kind of, what do you wanna leave the audience with? What thought do you wanna impart, impart on them? Uh, I guess, two things. The first one is I, I like how you, Colin, you, you emphasized how different these three commodities are. We talk about deep sea mining and we, we mix all of these together. When you read articles in the paper, they're, they're talking about tube worms and batteries and, and you know, those things are, you know, I, the comparison I make is like comparing wheat farming to chicken farming. Like it, it's just, they're, they're com completely different and it's, and they almost have to be discussed and treated separately in order to to appreciate all the nuances and then on a a, a more sort of philosophical note and, and this will maybe feed into what Verena might want to say is you know in the end we need raw materials for society and there are many ways we can get them we could reduce how much we need that's a 
good start. We can recycle as much as possible, but in the end, we need stuff. And you know, the, the question as to whether or not it's better on land or in the ocean, you know, mining is a terrible thing to do to the environment, no matter where you do it. You, you're digging holes and you're ringing up a lot of nasty stuff. And it's, it's a very difficult question as to where, what's the right way, you know, until we can start bringing in asteroids, which is ultimately where we need to go, but none of us will be alive when, when they do that. Um, I think that we, we, there are, there are a zillion reasons to not mine the seafloor, and there are probably not a zillion, but there are many reasons to mine the seafloor. And I think what you've heard is that we still know so, so little. And, and it's, in the end, it should be comparing apples to apples, seafloor mining versus, versus on land mining, because in the end, it's, it's mining. But, but we have so much work to do before we can get there that we're still at the the apples versus oranges. So Verena. I'll pick up on that theme. Um, at the beginning, John said engineers can do anything. Right now, part of the rhetoric is we have to fuel the green economy and we have to fuel it from the deep sea. Um, I would suggest that maybe the mining for the deep sea, it will, the metals will come in and we've got a few decades left before that becomes economically unviable. So you still have a wall. Is the wall here? Is the wall there? Let's get the innovation going now. We have a choice of a trade-off between a long lead time in which we are going to a pristine ecosystems on the seafloor and mankind has a really lousy record of knowing what it's doing and why and what the, the results are going to be. I think that given the possibilities that the deep sea floor is already contributing to us the stability and resilience of our planetary system I think we need to get those engineers a whole lot of funding to start solving those iterated, apparent iterated problems to fuel the green economy without messing up yet three more ecosystems. And then class, what, 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 what words of wisdom do you have for, uh, for everyone? Well, I, I, I briefly touched upon, uh, we briefly touched upon and discussed the, the concept of the common heritage of mankind and within the international deep sea bed regime, that is the, the overarching, I would say the, the vital concept that binds everything together. And I think the, the importance of it cannot be, cannot be understated. Um, there are a lot of components, like I said, and it's very important that all of these get the proper attention and, and, and are effectively implemented. Now we see that a lot of those components are still not effectively implemented or even some of them, like for example, the reserved areas are, are, are quite challenged and are, are, that system is getting eroded. So it's very important to keep in mind that the common heritage of mankind, that concept, the legal status of the area and its mineral resources, that we honor that, that concept and that all of the components, components that are associated with it, that they effectively uh, are getting implemented. So that would be my my message. 
who knows, maybe the decision that, you know, managing it for the common benefit of all humanity, maybe they'll decide that the, the best benefit for all humanity, just leave it alone. Who knows how it'll shake out. Um, but thank you all for joining me. I think this was very informative, very enlightening. Um, I We might try to follow up with you. There's still a lot of unanswered questions. I might bug you at a different time. But for now, thank you so much for spending more time than you signed up for talking about this with me. And I look forward to talking to each of you at some point in the future when we continue to cover this issue as it, you know, it's evolving very rapidly. So thank you. <laughs>